Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're downloading this podcast. It's Wednesday, July 15th, and we're happy to bring you back to IAB Real, where the leaders of the Interactive Advertising Bureau and the IAB Tech Lab get together to get real with ourselves and with our members and constituents about what's going on in the wild and woolly world of digital marketing, media, and advertising. My co-host today, oh, by the way, I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB, and my co-host today is Dennis Buckheim. Dennis is the president of the IAB Tech Lab. Tech Lab is the standard-setting body for the digital advertising and marketing and media industries globally, and a core partner of the IAB in making the wild and woolly world a little wet, less wild and less woolly. Good <laughs> morning, you, good Randall. afternoon, good evening, Dennis. How are you? Doing all right. How are you, Randall? Pretty okay. You know, I'm uh, you know still here in my closet on uh, <laughs> high above East 61st Street in Midtown Manhattan, line of sight to the uh, men's underwear department at Bloomingdale's. So I'm pretty happy. That's uh, yeah. That's that's. I'm about the same. I, although I have line of sight to the Seattle Space Needle, which is kind of cool. But <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. So you know, Dennis, it, it, it's been a uh, another uh, crazy week in the world of uh, digital media marketing and advertising. You know, we're in the middle of a uh, a very big uh, uh, Facebook boycott that has you know bled into uh, other social media platforms. There's been activity. Uh, in terms of uh, consumer privacy and the uh, the rejiggering of the digital advertising supply chain by some of the big uh, technology companies. But I want to hold all of that off to the side for a moment because I realized that as we started this podcast series, we haven't really appropriately introduced you to our voluminous audience out there. So <laughs> I want to I do that right now. Uh, and as I began reflecting on how long I've known you, I, I realized I can't even remember when you and I first met. I think you were already at Yahoo. Uh, it might have been when you were at Microsoft, but I never asked you a basic biographical question. In fact, it's one of those questions that I've been meaning to ask hundreds of people, but haven't done so. You've got a computer science degree from Brown University. How in hell did you ever end up in the advertising <laughs> First of all, I'm surprised there, 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 are, there are only literally hundreds of people who you could ask that question to probably, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think we, by the way, I think we met at Microsoft, but it was really uh, when I was at Yahoo, when I remember, I distinctly remember multiple times just sitting you know, across the table from you in, uh, in some really good discussions that I, actually one of which uh, was an input into the decision to found Tech Lab, right, yes. which, uh, <laughs> so we've come full circle, right? Yes. Um, but, but yeah, I, uh, so in, in my background, uh, you know, I, even when I was, you know, I was a kid, I was interested in computers, but I, I, I always was interested in, in the, the business side of the world and, uh, and in, you know, interacting with, you know, a community of people who would derive, you know, direct benefit from what I was working on. Um, did all I'm kinds of interrupt. I, I need to interrupt. Yeah. What was your, what was your first computer? My first computer was actually a uh, TRS-80, a Radio Shack TRS-80. Um, and but the first one that I really, really used was uh, a 1984 Macintosh. Wow. Um, and like that, I that was an amazing experience. Um, you know, where I uh, we we actually they had a test drive a Macintosh program, and we took the they let you take it home overnight. 
from the from the computer store, right when those existed. And uh, uh, and I stayed up. You know, I was 14 years old, admitting. Um, I stayed up until three in the morning playing with the damn thing, and and just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and that actually is that 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 gets a part of my path. But I uh, I, I went to Brown. I was interested in business and in computer science. I actually attempted to do a, uh, a what they called, I think, an independent concentration, which is the word for a major at Brown, but a custom. Yeah, Brown major. allowed that. Brown was pretty promiscuous yes. around allowing. Well, that. not promiscuous enough because <laughs> I proposed something that actually, uh, you know, looked a lot like what you would need as a degree uh, to become a product management, you know, leader or product manager. Um, before such, if there, there weren't actually really well-defined product managers in software at that point. Um, they didn't accept it. They said, you can get this through standard, you know, courses we have. So I, that's why I got degrees in, uh, in computer science and in business economics. Uh, so I kind of put that together. Um, uh, you know, so that, that, that's, I started out as an engineer, but I pretty quickly realized, okay, I actually really like designing products. I like interacting with customers. I like being out there a bit. Uh, my first job was at Apple and very much motivated by my love of the Mac. My timing was awful. It was 1992. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I could have gone to Microsoft. I should have probably. <laughs> I, I you know, counted the lost money from that many times. Um, but uh, the progression from there was you know, software engineering in multiple kind of odd areas you know, and, until I um, started a company uh, during the dot-com boom and uh, you know, co-founded with a really close friend. And one thing that we did as part of that, it was kind of like an early Pinterest, um, way before, it was too early as part of the problem, but uh, it was an early Pinterest and we needed a way to monetize it. And this is before there really were ad networks. And so one of the things we actually had to build was essentially a contextual advertising solution. Hmm. Um, and like literally uh, we used the Amazon affiliate program and affiliate links served next to the things that you had, you had captured in our tool. Um, so that was really my first foray at all into advertising. Uh, and, uh, so it was sort of AdSense before AdSense, but we decided we couldn't build that out ourselves. Um, so after that startup was sold, uh, I went to, uh, Ink to Me. <laughs> oh, that's um, yes, the name uh, for the past. It is. Uh, and uh, it was there for all of five months before it was acquired by Yahoo. Uh, and I was, uh, I was responsible for the paid inclusion program in search at Inc. to me. Uh, and that was, that's the first time I had you know, full focus on, on advertising. So I started in search, went to Yahoo, gradually got into sponsored search beyond paid inclusion, uh, and then gradually uh, at Yahoo and, and very much at Microsoft got into the display and video realm and kind of went from there. You know, it's, it's, so I have a reason for asking this. I, I want to I pursue this, but I, ha but I have to say, because I, I didn't realize that uh, the TRS-80 uh, was, was, your, was your first computer. So um, when I was at the, uh, the New York Times, uh, my, so my, my first computer actually earlier uh, than that was a an Osborne one. Was it the oh. Osborne? Yeah, I think it was the Osborne one, not the Osborne two. I'm, I'm blanking because the K Pro was was soon thereafter. The Osborne was the first portable portable computer, and it was about the size of a of a, a mid sized valise. Uh, <laughs> so it was like portable in the sense that you know a, a suitcase is portable. It would fit 
more or less under an airline seat, but you, you really couldn't travel with it. But uh, when I got to the New York Times, uh, they uh, at one point shifted me uh, from the magazine where I was uh, the politics editor at the time and said, uh, we want to put you on the, uh, the Bush campaign. This was the first Bush, George H.W. Bush. And um, because I was writing a big magazine story for the New York Times magazine. And so I actually had to take our beat reporter's place on the Bush campaign plane for a week. And they said, okay, well, you need to know how to file from the road. So they gave me what we called a trash 80. Uh, that's what it was known internally. Gave yep. me a quick tutorial on how to use it. I was better than most because I had already been using, you know, the, the Osborne and the Capro for a couple of years. I don't think I'd graduated yet to the, uh, to the Apple IIe. I'm trying to remember. Uh, at some point along the way, I got an Apple IIe. And that was it. I learned how to file from the, uh, the road in uh, January in Iowa, just before the Iowa caucuses, while using a TRS-80 to, uh, uh, to cover the, uh, the George H.W. Bush campaign for the, uh, for the New York Times. And my most distinctive memory of that it had nothing to do with the, uh, the little computer, which worked fine, had to do with getting holes in my shoes in the winter in Iowa which made me believe that, you know, there actually isn't that much romance in being a political reporter. Sorry. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> but let me, but okay, I want to go back, go back to this because you had this experience of coming into the advertising industry from, a, uh, from an engineering and product uh, background in the early days of internet advertising. And this is, I'm not even sure how to ask the, uh, how to ask the question, but, but, it was really right about that point that the, the divide in the advertising industry began. I, I, I keep thinking back to a, a very famous 1950s era essay by the, uh, the cultural historian C.P. Snow called The Two Cultures, in which he argued that, uh, he was saying in the, I think it was saying in the UK, but the United States and the developed world, we were rapidly coming into a conflict between two separate cultures, the scientific culture and the, uh, the liberal arts culture. He had different phrasing for that. And we saw this reflected in the advertising industry beginning at that time. There are some people who understood that engineering and technology were going to fundamentally, were fundamentally transforming the ways companies went to market, attracted customers, measured uh, their activities, um, uh, sold things to them or through them, uh, companies that understood that versus companies that still thought of it as more of a, I don't know, a creative or a process or a set of craft skills. I'm not sure. I mean, how did you see that reflected in, in your early days in the, uh, in the technology side of the advertising industry? It, you know, it, it, uh, I, it, it's, I, I think there was so much innovation happening so quickly uh, that um, that there was sort of plenty of room for, for, you know, for both sides, if you will, right, to, to coexist and, and to, uh, to evolve. And, you know, the creativity, I, I think, you know, a lot of the creativity evolved um, on its own, right? And, and then the underpinnings had to be built on the technology side. So there was a certain, I think there was a certain divide of, you know, infrastructure versus what's the customer consumer experience. And then I do think it evolves to be, okay, wait a minute, we want to get 
you know, the, the, what, what we want to achieve with personalization and, you know, richer creatives and all of that started to uh, spill more into the technology side as, as sort of the basic underpinnings where, you know, the infrastructure was there um, and, uh, and more established. And, and I think that's when I saw more interaction uh, between creative and, and uh, the, between the creative and technology sides. I think, you know, my, my experience was pretty good in general in, in you know, helping, trying to help evolve the, the creativity and, and the consumer experience. I think where I had more challenges, frankly, is, is engaging with the sales side, <laughs> where, you know, as an, as an engineering leader or a product leader, mostly a, a product management leader or general manager through my career, um, you know, the amount of, of effort that was asked, uh, you know, of the engineering team and the product team to meet, you know, the one-off ideas, right, that, that came in from sales, some of which were certainly creative, others were just, okay, we're, we just need to go make this money, right, uh, and this is the only way we're going to get this client, um, that was, that was more of the tension that, that I think I experienced. Uh, you know, it's it's but it, it's it definitely evolved uh, and uh, and it's been an interesting road all along. Yeah, it 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 I, it, I still think that there are significant uh, conflicts in there. You and I talk about this all the time. Yeah. Um, it it's hard to get uh, people on the general management side of the business to um, fully understand, really just grok at a at a at a, at a foundational level, you know, the degree to which the, uh, the mechanics of, uh, of the internet, even that word, the internet stands for so many things now, but how the mechanics of the internet um, uh, define, constrain, or redirect the, um, the, the essential processes by which they conduct business. Um, I, I think that there's, there's still this gap they get it. I mean, intellectually, yeah. they get it, but it's very, very hard uh, to engage them. And to the degree in the media side of the business that everything does ultimately come down to sale. Uh, uh, it's that, right. you know, it, it's, it, it's hard to find sales leaders who are able to uh, give the time and the study necessary to understand both those constraints and opportunities. And I think, yeah, I think it's something you've been, uh, you know, I think pretty particularly insightful about is, you know, that, that, and we've talked about in the past is, um, for lack of a better term, is kind of the balance of power shifting, right, over over the course of the last decade, in particular, as uh, as more and more of the most successful companies, arguably, right, in the media and advertising space, um, clearly are the, the the those that have been led by technologists, right, and product leaders. And that that started to I think wreak havoc a little bit, right? And and cause some um, you know, almost defensive behaviors in some cases. Hopefully not offending anybody too much, right? But um, you know, some real uh, you know reaction and and uh, and, and tension, a further tension, right? Between the products, the product leaders, technologists, sales leaders, business leaders. Um, I think it's much better now from what I've seen, but it, as it's just sort of become more of a steady state. But, um, but yeah, I'd be interested in, in your point of view there, as I think you saw as a, as a business leader and given your, you know, really, really rich background, you know, what, how did you see this unfolding and, and how far along in some sense do you think we are, if, if you buy in at all to this sort of, you know, uh, 
shifting in a way of of you know what what's what's leading and what's following it in different aspects of the industry. Well, so I can get um, a pretty uh, complex or complicated and historical about this, but I'll try and make I'll try and make sense of it. Um, when I was writing my last book, which was a cultural history of advertising framed around one, the birth, evolution, life, and death of a single advertising campaign, I really steeped myself a lot in um, the academic history of advertising and media. And it was one of the more wonderful parts of working on the book, just basically absorbing hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of academic uh, you know, histories and analyses, uh, really uh, even auditing a couple uh, history of technology courses uh, at Princeton where I was living for part of that time. And um, I was very influenced by, uh, by reading uh, the work of Harold Innes. Uh, now, Harold Innes is uh, extraordinarily well-known among media scholars and hardly known at all among the, uh, the general public. He was Marshall McLuhan's teacher at, I think, the University of Toronto. Um, so he heavily influenced McLuhan. And Innes's primary uh, theory, I hope I'm not misstating it, was that cultures and societies are defined uh, most by their dominant means of communications. In other words, at any given point in time, I mean, lasting for generally long periods of time, centuries, there'll be a dominant means of communication. And that means of communication will basically set the, you know, the terms, the constraints, you know, by which human beings communicate with each other. Seems to, it seems to be common sense, but it was a pretty revolutionary idea. Uh, when Innes was, uh, was promulgating it. And if you want to think about it simply, if your primary means of communication is uh, chiseling hieroglyphics into stone, well, that has a certain meaning, uh, certain constraints, certain things derived from that, but it changes dramatically when the printing press comes along and all of a sudden you can kind of print things out in mass. You don't have to have individual chiselers in stone. Um, so I've thought about that a lot, you know, relative to the history of marketing in media. One of the things that I came to conclude is that um, the 20th century media were kind of more stable, more unchanged for a longer period of time than we ever rightfully gave, uh, gave notice to. And I, I thought about this a lot, especially relative to print media, magazines and newspapers. And I thought that about this quite a lot during my very brief period at, as chief digital officer at Time Inc. You know, the magazine business and the newspaper business, take the newspaper business, actually, because it's not a bad, uh, bad example, had been essentially unchanged for the better part of 200 years in the United States. You know, there was a point in the 19th century where uh, newspapers shifted from being primarily funded by political parties, which had been the... Um, uh, the situation that had been inherited from, uh, from England. Uh, but in the early 19th century, at around the time the U.S. was really beginning to develop a full continental market, coast-to-coast -coast marketplace, some proprietors really uh, uh, came to understand that they can make more money through advertising support than through political party support. You know, uh, in other words, instead of going hat in hand to the Whigs, and trying to get them to pay for your newspaper, um, 
better to go to hundreds of advertisers and get them to pay. You'll make more money. Uh, and that then, if you go through the history of the newspaper industry, that led to the explosion in the number of newspapers, and it also led to ex an explosion in the size of newspapers. In fact, it was so important that historically that in writing the Constitution, our founding fathers actually built uh, an effective franking clause into the Constitution. So newspapers were exempt from paying postal fees for sending their papers to other papers. So let me let me just clarify. If I'm running the uh, you know the Oshkosh Gazette in uh, 1810, I could send my Oshkosh, Oshkosh Gazette to any other newspaper in the United States without having to pay postage for it. Why? Because the founding fathers understood that that would help create this national marketplace that they envisioned. Um, it was also a way of newspapers providing free content to other newspapers, which allowed them to fill in the spaces between the ads. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in effect, our founding fathers in the United States understood the importance of networks before the yeah, technology existed. <laughs> yeah. Before the technology yeah. existed. So this is one of the things that Innes uh, was, was looking at. So if you kind of fast forward to today, I mean, clearly, you know, the internet, the early internet, you know, changed all of these things um, uh, would, uh, such that everything about media and marketing and advertising was going to shift. And I don't, th I think because our, um, our sub-industries, the television industry, the newspaper industry, the magazine industry had actually been so static for such a long time, they simply were not accustomed to change. They just weren't ready for it. They didn't know how to do it. Um, now, television was better able than most because they'd already gone through the cable revolution. Um, and, and television has always been a very, very commercial industry, as opposed to newspapers, which have been mission-driven, and magazines, which have been craft-driven. So commercial industries, I think, are more given, uh, more open to change than craft industries or um, uh, or mission-driven industries. But I think, I think that sense of mission and that sense of craft, particularly in those industries, uh, just held them back from understanding what the dimensions of this change actually would be. So that meant that you know, CS folks like you, computer science engineers, product people, um, were kind of left on your own. Uh, said, you would come to New York on occasion and say, hey, we got some great ideas for you. You'd bump up against the brick wall of companies not yeah. really wanting to change. So you went out back out to the West Coast and said, okay, I'm going to build the new continent out here. You were like the pioneers. Uh, <laughs> you, you went in your covered wagon to the East Coast. They said, we don't know what to do with you. So you went, took the covered wagon back to the West Coast and built a whole new industry, separate and apart. And it, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's the... The, the disruption that is caused by technology, right, is, is destabilizing, right, of course, right, and it, it's, uh, uh, there are those who, who look to embrace that and find the opportunities, and there are those who, of course, are more entrenched and established, and it's harder, right, <laughs> in many cases, to embrace the new opportunities. But I think on that, on that point, the, um, yeah, the disruption of, of everything that's, that's happened this year 
has been particularly interesting from a, uh, I mean, it's obviously just crazy and <laughs> difficult to get through, but, um, but very interesting in terms of how technology has, has played such a key role again. Right? Well, well, let me ask you, let me ask you about that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Apple made a big announcement recently regarding IDFA. Yeah. So uh, it, that kind of opens up two questions. And I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners are, uh, are too embarrassed to say what they don't know. I'm not embarrassed at all. What the hell is IDFA? Why should we care about it? Uh, and, and more to those earlier points that we were making, yeah. you know, why is it so hard to get business leaders to care about something like IDFA? Or maybe they know something we don't. Maybe they don't need to care about IDFA. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think there, I'll come back to what IDFA is in a minute, but the, you know, I think there's, uh, there's a great deal of, of belief among the strongest players, right? That, uh, in many cases they can find the, the special path through the challenging time, right? And, and they will persevere and they will actually be stronger and they will knock out competitors in that process. Perfectly rational <laughs> you know, line of thought, right? Um, but the, uh, but the, the, what, what happens in, in the case of something like IDFA or the, the identifier for advertising on iOS, TVOS, iPod OS, uh, that actually is kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of the, the cookie, right. In a browser, which so it, it's, it, it enables, uh, addressability, which enables personalization and measurement and all of the, you know, all of the use cases that you might imagine for advertising and marketing. Um, but on iOS and, and other Apple OS uh, platforms. Um, so a Apple, in other words, IDFA is the center of Apple's private uh, um, uh, targeting mechanism. It's a private it mechanism. Was, it, it, it's actually pretty open right now, um, but uh, it, it's basically, it's very much parallel to the, the cookie, right? And the, the, everything that's been built around cookies, there's kind of a parallel structure that's been built around IDFA so that you can you know, understand who actually saw your ad, right? If you, if you have the uh, access to know that. Right, but nobody owns the cookie. Cookie is, is, is freely available. IDFA is owned by Apple. They could change it, shut it off. It's, it, right, exactly, and that's what's happened is, you know, they have, they have gradually restricted it and given, yeah, you know, they've given consumers more transparency, more control over whether IDFA can actually um, will actually be available to anyone who's who's asking for it. Any you know, ad network or DSP or SSP or any you know, verification vendor, etc. Uh, and with the latest change, uh, it actually when you open an app, uh, it will prompt you if that app is is reliant at all on on IDFA. It will prompt you as a consumer to either uh, allow or or deny access to the IDFA to to anyone who is attached to that app, basically. Um, which then, you know, if the consumer says nope, um, suddenly all of the personalization and measurements and all the use cases that that were previously enabled by IDFA for that app are no longer enabled. And that's, I would argue, that's a big change. Right? Mm -hmm. And and to your point, that that is destabilizing even to the biggest <laughs> players in the industry. Um, but what you see is, I think, you know, the, the, the strong first parties in particular, um, in some cases, are the last to 
to realize that there's a problem, right? They think, they think, well, I have the direct relationship with the consumer, I'm okay, right? Um, the problem is that even if you maintain that direct relationship with the consumer, you're undoubtedly dependent throughout the supply chain on a number of different partners, call them, right? Vendors, et cetera, um, who will cease to have the access that they need to, to, to understand uh, you know, who a consumer is to be able to do the measurement, the attribution, et cetera, on your behalf. And, and so you won't, you know, you'll be flying blind, right, is, the, is kind of the dramatic point there um, in the best case, right? And it, it's, it's a real challenge. And it is, I think it is sort of a, it's a technical detail, right, to your point, um, that, that should matter a lot to, you know, even the most senior people in, in pretty much every brand, every, you know, publisher, service provider. Um, it's something that, you know, we're, we're concerned is happening to your point um, with, you know, just Apple making the, the decisions in a vacuum, uh, you know, whereas we think it should be a more collaborative process and that that would result in actually a better consumer experience and more consistent consumer experience, not even just within the Apple platform, but across all of the devices and platforms that consumers use. Now, we, yeah, go ahead. What we're really, so a similar thing is happening, but in a different way with Google's announcement, it's pending deprecation of third-party cookies. One is they're giving a two-year runway for this. They're being very public about it. They're asking for, uh, for input. But net effect still is that interoperability across this very complicated digital advertising supply chain becomes more and more and more challenged. You know, yep. you got a lot of individual companies have their own in, having their own individual ways of doing things and everybody else having to use the, um, the internet version of chicken wire and spit to make it all uh, <laughs> hang together. Yep. Um, I'm being told to wrap up, but it leads me to one last question, uh, at least for today, we'll probably pick up on it again. But that almost kind of points back in the direction of, eh, you know, if I'm a big marketer, you know, to hell with it. I, you know, I worked for a hundred years or so with Nielsen ratings and Arbitron ratings using, you know, meters attached to television sets. And it wasn't perfect, but it was good enough. I'm just going to go back to something like that. I mean, is that the, the upshot of all this that we create yet again, two advertising systems, you know, one for kind of small refined direct response marketers and the other for the big marketers who just going to use creative mechanisms to get things out there and create impressions? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, even the, the proposals that, that we've heard from, uh, from Google or that or some of the work we're seeing come out of Apple um, on, uh, uh, you know, on, on attribution, for example, it, it all comes down to anonymize, completely anonymizing who the consumer is and aggregating data and creating, you know, cohorts, right? A lot of, a lot of fun words. Uh, um, and, and that actually kind of, when you think about it, almost looks like a panel the way you're describing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, th that's, we're, we're hopeful that that sort of, that becomes a more consistent, um, you know, baseline capability across different browsers and OSs. Again, more we would like it to be more consistent. We think that that's in the best interest of the of, of you know funding media and services, but it's also in the best interest of consumers who could then have more consistent control and and transparency into you know what is and isn't known about them, um, you know, across all these devices. So we you know we're we're really 
we're, we're trying to push for what we've been calling predictable privacy right? mm -hmm. and not proprietary privacy. Um, and, and that seems like a, a good path forward that if you had that baseline, then you could build on top of it to the degree that a consumer actually says, it's okay for you to know who I am and to personalize ads for me and all of that, uh, you know, more specifically and to measure, right, how, how I respond and things like that. Um, if I have, if there's a direct engagement between brand or publisher and consumer, uh, you know, we think there's, there's real potential that if that can be built above that baseline of predictable privacy, that's not a bad outcome. Um, but again, all of this, it, it's not simple. <laughs> and uh, it requires, I think, very much to your point, the, the conscious in, you know, decisions and engagement of what is, what is a company's strategy you know, from the top down um, on how they're going to engage and, and what is a very rapidly evolving market that, you know, to your point about TV, even that was stable for a long time and not now, right? <laughs> so, right. right? <laughs> well, I'll leave you, I'll leave you with, with, with one thought uh, and it's a perverse thought. I can't understand how people get creeped out by receiving ads for things that they are interested in, but they don't get creeped out when they receive ads for things that they're utterly disinterested in. So in other yeah. words, you know, uh, I look through my Instagram feed and I love all the things I get for cooking and for alcoholic beverages and I bought off of them. I can't <laughs> stand the occasional one that sneaks through for, uh, for puppy and cat litter because I don't have a puppy or a cat. So, yep. um, so in effect, you know, we're fighting this strange rear guard action to make relevance something that's sexy and important, uh, rather than uh, revert back to the days when irrelevance reigned in the world of advertising and marketing. We'll see if we can get there. Completely agree. Yeah, well said. So we're, we're being given the high sign by our bosses. Yes, we have bosses, and they tell us it's time to shut up. So uh, I want to thank our, uh, our audience for, uh, for downloading, for zipping in, for listening on, on your runs in the morning uh, to the ruminations on IEB Real, where the leaders of the IEB and the IEB Tech Lab get real with you and get real with each other on the wild and woolly world of internet advertising and marketing. I've been here with Dennis Buckheim, the president of the IEB Tech Lab, I am Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IEB, saying uh, sayonara for now, and we'll talk to you next week. Goodbye.